0: 91.7 WVXU is proud to support this and other locally produced podcasts through its podcast network. For an easy to navigate curated list of some of the best local and national podcasts, visit Podcast Central at WVXU.org slash Podcast Central. Welcome to the Twelfth Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 182 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We're a working library with more than 80,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at www.mercantillibrary.com. We always welcome new members and guests. I'm Brendan Call. I'm on the board here at the Mercantile Library, and I'm ex- so excited today because our guest on the podcast is Erica Wagner, and Erica Wagner is the author of the book Chief Engineer: Washington Roebling, the Man Who Built the Brooklyn Bridge. And uh, Ms. Ms. Wagner um, is a uh, has authored a, a number of books, um, nonfiction and fiction. Um, she was the literary editor for the London Times for nearly two decades, and interviewed authors such as Philip Roth, Donna Tartt, Nick Hornby, Maurice Sendak, Bill Bryson, and Seamus Haney, two uh, authors who have appeared at the Mercantile Library for our Niehoff Lectures. Um, and it is a great honor for me to get to interview her now about her book about Washington Roebling. I just want to say thank you for coming back to the Mercantile, uh, this time via via phone, and, and we're talking to you. Actually, you're in London right now, so thanks for yeah, joining us again. I
1: am. I'm, I'm at home in London, and... Um, I would also say what a marvelous time I had at the Mercantile Library. It was a really wonderful evening and I was thrilled to be there and I hope to come back before long.
0: It was it was really cool and what was uh, I thought what, one of my favorite parts was at the end of the session we were Um, several of us were hanging out the window of the Mercantile Library on the 11th floor because if you look south, you can get a pretty terrific view of the Roebling Bridge from the Mercantile Library. I don't think I had ever noticed that, and you came and you brought us that view, so thank you for that.
1: You have to have a bit of a head for heights, I think, to to actually lean, because you do have to lean out the window and... and and look out, but it's it's absolutely worth
0: it. Yeah, in- indeed. Um, so w- what we'll what we'll do today is maybe just chat a little bit about the book. We have um, uh, you know um, several thousand members of the Mercantile Library, and not all were able to be there uh, at our event uh, a few weeks ago. So we'll we'll kind of cover some of that, and and maybe get into a couple of other topics that we didn't get into uh, when you were here. Um, But reading the book, um, your introduction, you talk a little bit about your inspiration for writing the book, and I don't think I can hear that story um, too many times. So can we talk a little bit about when you had the moment where you thought, I need to write about this, this, about Washington Roebling and about the bridge?
1: So this story begins, like so many stories do, with one kind of love that maybe leads to another kind of love. When I was still in my teens, I found myself, A boyfriend, an English boyfriend. I was living in New York at the time. I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And my boyfriend came over one winter to visit me. He was a newly qualified civil engineer. And while, of course, I'm sure he came visit me, he did want to see me, but really I feel he wanted to see the Brooklyn Bridge, which is and was an icon of civil engineering. Up until that point, although I had, as I say, grown up in New York, maybe Brooklyn wasn't so cool as it is now, and I had never crossed the bridge. Maybe I'd driven across it in a taxi, but I'd never walked on the promenade. And we walked on the promenade one cold, bright, blue winter morning. I really remember that morning distinctly. And I had a kind of mystical experience. I was so struck by the bridge as people before me have been done and people after me, of course. This is not an uncommon experience because it's such a wonder of construction. But I also had someone with me who could explain to me a little bit about how the bridge worked. And it really lodged myself, lodged itself in my consciousness in an extraordinary way. And I wanted to find out more about it. The boyfriend went back to England, we broke up, so it goes. But I remained fascinated first by the bridge, and then as I started to read about it, by its builder, Washington Roebling. I would stress the fact that I am not an engineer. I read English at university. I am very much a person who has worked in the humanities all her life. But Washington Roebling, as well as being an extraordinary engineer, was an extraordinary writer. And when I started to read what he had written, a huge variety of material, of course technical reports about the bridge, but which were written for non-engineers to read, letters that he wrote from the front during the American Civil War, letters he wrote to his father, the great engineer John Roebling, I heard his voice speaking to me, and it is absolutely true to say that I heard this voice Speaking to me that's really how it felt and I began to feel that he wanted me to speak for him and that's the genesis of this book but that genesis did happen about 30 years ago now so this has been a, a project I've had in mind for a long long time
0: I think that's the you know that's just so remarkable to, to sit with the project that long you've written other other books and um, and obviously your work um, as a book reviewer for magazines and newspapers around the the world, um, but to have a project uh, last that long, this must feel like just a tremendous sense of accomplishment to get it done and to see it. And I I I, I wonder uh, the feeling when you open and you see the galleys and you saw the books for the first time. What's that like?
1: It was pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing, and it's a little scary to say you know oh this is my life's work because i like to think i have a lot of life yet to run you know yeah Yeah. and all the books that i've done have meant a great deal to me but this book does have a special place in my heart and in my mind and part of the reason if i'm perfectly honest you know and i think this is important to say part of the reason it took me so long to do or is that I kept finding reasons that I shouldn't do it. Uh. You know, as I just said to you, I'm not an engineer. So that was a big reason not to do it. How can I possibly accomplish this? There's all this stuff that I don't know. Will I be able to find it out? So I kept blocking my own way. And, you know, I would bring up, uh, another wonderful writer um, who had a book published this year, The Marvelous, George Saunders, whose novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, yeah. I just adored. And I did an event with George Saunders when he was over here in England, and he talked about how he had had the idea for a novel about Abraham Lincoln in cemetery for about 20 years. And he had resisted doing it because to write a novel about Abraham Lincoln seemed so audacious and so scary. And he finally attempted it when he realized that he didn't want to be the guy where on his gravestone it said, here's the guy who didn't do what he really wanted to do because he was scared. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the feeling that I had, too. You know, finally you get to a point and you think, I just, I just have to do this. But yes, because of all those roadblocks that I put in front of myself, nobody else put them in front of me, I do feel quite a sense of accomplishment in finally getting the book out there and allowing other people, I hope, to encounter Washington as I have lived with him all of these decades.
0: Yeah, it's really terrific. I mean, the, um, and, and again, congratulations, the the book that came up a little bit, um, and I and you referenced a few times in your book was David McCullough's book about the Great Bridge. Um, yeah But you know, on reflection, that book really is about the bridge, and your book is about Washington, and in a sense about uh, him and his family, his father and his wife, and others who are connected to them. And um, I think that's that's part of the the beauty of it is because you get a little bit of it in McCullough's book, but you you brought to life uh, an individual who is in a sense this quintessential man who l- lived at such amazing times in American history. Fought in the war, uh, designed designed and built bridges at a time that our country was experiencing you know a, a radical amount of growth. And but but for your book, there's no really. There's, there's no other biography of him, and there should have been. And so that's, that's why I think it's just such a, you know, kind of a critical contribution to history. I mean, a guy like this who accomplished so much, we should know his name, and he should be familiar to many people.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. The Great Bridge is an extraordinary book, and it is a classic, I would say. But it is a book about the building of the Brooklyn bridge That's it's focus if it's a biography it is a biography of the bridge not of Washington Roebling right. and David McCullough says in that book that he's surprised that no one has written a biography of Washington Roebling because he found him such an extraordinary and fascinating man and again I suppose all of those years I I kept waiting I kept thinking oh well someone's going to do this, this and <laughs> Maybe somebody else is going to do right, it. Right. But, kind of to my own amazement, they never did. Yeah. So I'm very glad um, that it's that it's my name on the cover of this book.
0: Oh, absolutely. All right. So let's let's uh, because we're a little provincial here, and we like to point out that our bridge came first. Um, absolutely. Let's. Like so. <laughs> that's right. Let's talk about your. You spent time when you were writing the book. You spent time in Cincinnati. Um, you, you uh, got connected to the, the locally famous uh, Don Heinrich Tolsman, who does such great things for our community. Um, tell us a little bit about what you learned about Cincinnati and about the Cincinnati that John and Washington would have experienced when they were here building our Roebling Bridge.
1: Well, the story of your Roebling Bridge, as it is now called, when it was opened, it was called the Covington-Cincinnati Bridge. because course, I right. don't have to tell you. It goes between Covington in Kentucky and Cincinnati in Ohio on the other side. Um, it didn't take as long to actually build as the Brooklyn Bridge did, but it was a great many years in the making, because as I understand, the, the project was originally instigated in the 1840s. And then in the 1850s, John Roebling began building this bridge, but there was a panic, across the nation, as there were on several occasions during the 19th century, um, a great crisis of financing and the bridge had to be abandoned. And it wasn't begun again by John Roebling until the last year of the American Civil War. John Roebling started working on it again in, I believe, as I recall, 1864. And as soon as Washington um, was discharged from the Union Army, and just after he was married to his remarkable wife, Emily Warren Roebling, he was seconded uh, to help his father out and really supervise the building of your extraordinary bridge, which stands in some ways as a kind of precursor to the Brooklyn Bridge. You can see It absolutely has the qualities of a Roebling Bridge. It looks a little bit more like the Brooklyn Bridge than it would have when it was first opened on January the 1st, 1867, is when it first opened to, to traffic, because now it looks as if the towers of the bridge are built underwater. But that's only because the Ohio River has widened since it opened because of dams that were built So when the bridge was opened, those towers were standing on dry land. But now it really does look like a kind of smaller Brooklyn Bridge in some ways. But when Washington came to Cincinnati, it was, as of course it still is, a really thriving, vibrant city and a very industrial city. There's a wonderful quote um, from a letter I have that, Washington wrote to Emily before she joined him on the banks of the Ohio. Everything here is black, black. No one wears anything else, he wrote. It is of no use. Your purple silk checked with white would be as black as your black silk in a week. No amount of washing keeps the hands clean. I am wearing my flannel shirts now as the wash bill comes too high with white shirts. And that was because all of the industry... That was going on in Cincinnati. Wow! Time it really was a a thriving city, and the building of the Roebling Bridge was really part of that growth and expansion of the place.
0: Um, He so uh, both John and Washington lived. uh, It sounds like in Covington, yeah, and and I think the house is still there. You you went by it. That's right.
1: The, The house is still there. They lived. In a house belonging to a family called Ball, and he described it as a secesh house. Yeah. Because many people, certainly in that part of Kentucky, remained after the war sympathizers with the Confederate cause. So that's how he said. He said they were a secesh family, but their lodgings were, were pretty good.
0: Um, he. Um Washington was, was certainly involved in the building of this, this bridge here, yes?
1: Oh, indeed. I mean, Washington was really supervising the whole construction of the bridge, and especially the construction of the cables when the cables were spun. That's, how, that's the way you talk about cables being made. You say the cables were spun across the river, although they not really any spinning is involved. Um, but the stretching of the wire, wire which actually came from England, which came from a company in Manchester called Johnson and Nephew. The wire came all the way from England to stretch across the Ohio River, and that very difficult and dangerous work was completely under Washington's supervision. It,
0: it um, you know, ours is named, it's, its technical name is the John A. Roebling Suspension Bridge, but, you know, again, reading the book, it's hard not to, um, it, it, it almost should be just called the Roebling Bridge so that it gives due credit to, to both John and Washington.
1: Yes, I think that's true, but but it's also fair to say that the, the designer of the bridge, the chief engineer of the bridge, was Washington's father, John A. Roebling. He was going to be, of course, the chief engineer of the Brooklyn Bridge, but his untimely death in 1869 Meant that it was Washington who had to build that bridge entirely.
0: So uh, that's a good segue to Brooklyn. Um, after they completed this bridge here, um, Washington was on site when um, John was injured, and you describe this incident in the book, and and, and was there, um, if not at his bedside, there when he died, when his father died, and they that was it was the the culmination of an extraordinary, extraordinarily complicated relationship between the, the two men. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, it was in some ways the culmination of that relationship, but to me the irony was that in many ways that relationship continued after John's death because of the work that Washington had yeah. to take over. The two of them had a very difficult relationship, John was a brilliant engineer and one of the great innovators of the 19th century. But as a manuscript that Washington left behind reveals, he was also a brutal tyrant as a father and a husband. Washington's growing up is not one to be envied in the least. So while his father respected his oldest very much and thought he was a young man of great talent and believed he would do very well in the world, their relationship was problematic, to say the least. Washington was going to be, again, his father's assistant on the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, the New York and Brooklyn Bridge, as it was originally called. But then in July of 1869, John Roebling had what seemed perhaps to be a minor accident down by the river in Brooklyn. He was looking to see where the bridge would eventually cross the river. A ferry was coming in. He was standing on some ferry pilings. And when the ferry hit the pilings, John Roebling's toes were crushed in those pilings. And he died 10 days later of tetanus, which is a particularly gruesome way to die. Now, of course, there's vaccine, but in developing countries, tetanus is still very much a problem. And so he died on the 22nd of July, 1869, and by August, Washington, who was then only 32 years old, was put in charge of the building of the Brooklyn Bridge.
0: And um, its I, I was struck by, um, you know, we talked a little bit about their difficult relationship and... Um, at times it felt like reading when i was reading the book it, it felt like um you know washington was depressed at times and um c- certainly had a level of mental anguish um that was significant and it was a, a significant part of his life yet he persevered and um you know basically picked up the pieces of the bridge project and and led it forward but to your point, this relationship carried on and was uh, a theme through his whole life. Yeah.
1: Yes, it really did. And but I would say, um, <laughs> to, to your point, the thing, the central thing that I find most inspiring about Washington's story, and the reason I think, or that I hope, that Washington's life would be of interest to people who are perhaps not necessarily interested in engineering or great engineering achievements is this quality of tenacity that you mentioned. Washington had a really difficult life to some extent. He was born into privilege. As he grew up, his father became an extremely wealthy man, thanks to John Roebling's invention, really, American patenting and development of wire rope, which would be the foundation of the family's fortune. And I think we may come back to that. Mm -hmm. So Washington was raised with a certain amount of privilege, but John Roebling, as I said, was a brutal tyrant of a father. He went through the American Civil War. Washington served for four years in the Union Army. He joined as a private, and he left the army as a colonel which is quite an unusual trajectory to go all that way, rising through the ranks. Yeah,
0: st- his war story just kept going and going. It was remarkable.
1: It really is remarkable, his war service, because he was present at fighting in some of the most awful battles of the American Civil War, which is one of the most awful wars that has ever been seen anywhere on the face of the earth, I would say. He was never injured, amazingly, considering the incredibly high casualty rate of those of that war. He really did have the, the devil's own luck, but it clearly was, how could it not be, a traumatic experience. And during the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, Washington himself became very ill during the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, thanks to working in the high pressure of the caissons beneath the towers of the bridge. But his illness as it dogged him through the rest of his long life. He lived to be 89 years old. He died in 1926. To some extent, his illness is mysterious. You have to be careful always, I think, with retrospective diagnosis. But the degree to which he was affected psychologically by his upbringing, by the war, by the long shadow of his father's brutality is, is hard to gauge, but throughout that, he had this incredible quality of tenacity of perseverance of never giving up. If a task was put in front of him, he would complete it, no matter what the cost and this is an ex- an inspiring, if sometimes I should say intimidating example
0: yeah it, it is. Um... It was definitely a takeaway for me is thinking about um, this, this uh, kind of man who had that level of tenacity and perseverance and resilience even. Um, it, it is a, it's a, a truly inspirational story there. Um, that he, well, he was well, you using. know,
1: I would add, I suppose one of the things that makes him very human for me um, is, you know, it's not like he didn't complain. He complained a lot.
0: Yeah, and you quote him complaining. I mean, he was a bit. Later in life, he seemed like a bit of a grouch.
1: (laughs) You don't have the sense of someone who's completely stoic and who's saying (laughs) nothing bothers me. Plenty bothered him. (laughs) He would whine about it, but he would just go on and get done what he needed to do. Also.
0: Yeah, indeed. But that made him funny, and you brought out his humor in this in this uh, book as well, too, and. We talked a little bit when you were here about kind of chuckling, listening to his voice, um, you know, talk about his uh, predicament,
1: I guess. Yes, yes. He had a really wonderful, dry sense of humor, something that was remarked on by people very early on. There were letters from his comrades during the war describing his personality as being very kind of laconic. and. Undeluded and unafraid as well, and this is what really comes through in his writing: is this wry, entertaining, cautious, trustworthy personality, and that's something that endured all of his life.
0: Um, before we get to his the company a little bit, um, we we talked about the the bridge and and um, you know, I, I'm encouraging everyone listening to to go buy this book and read it because it is uh, a remarkable story in parts about Cincinnati, but about the bridge. But um, you do a just a, a wonderful tribute to Washington Roebling's first wife, Emily Warren Roebling, who is a character that it, that at times I wish for a biography of her. Um, Much of her primary source material, I think, is gone, but you brought her to life in an incredibly special way. Um, Talk about her a little bit and her influence on Washington and also on the bridge itself.
1: She was a remarkable woman. She was called Emily, Emily Warren Roebling, and she was the younger sister of his commanding officer during the American Civil War. He was called General G.K. Warren, and Emily had grown up in Cold Spring in New York, which is right near West Point, where the gun foundry was to make the guns for West Point, and she was 13 years younger than G.K. Warren, her older brother, so they almost had a kind of paternal relationship between them. And One thing I think it's important to say about G.K. Warren is he was very concerned for Emily's education. He paid for her education, which was pretty unusual at the time. So for a young woman growing up in the early years, in the middle years of the 19th century, she had a very good education, which would serve her well later on. She and Washington met in February of 1864 at a ball in Washington, D.C. We can gather that up until that point, he had been pretty reticent in the ladies department there's a letter from his mother that gives that indication that he wasn't one to have a lot of girlfriends but when he met emily at this ball he was instantly and completely smitten and he writes very charmingly to his younger sister he he had a couple of younger sisters but his favorite was elvira and she was his confidant and he wrote her right away she said i he said to her, I think you're, she has captured your brother Washi's heart at last. And they were married in 1865, in January. And perhaps she would have expected the conventional married life of a woman of her time. But after the building of the Brooklyn Bridge was begun in 1869, John Roebling was dead, and... From about 1872 onward, Washington began to be very badly affected by caisson disease. No one understood in the 19th century the effect that increased pressure of atmosphere had on the human body. Now when people go scuba diving, we know that you have to come up from the increased pressure very slowly so you don't get bubbles of nitrogen trapped in your bloodstream those bubbles of nitrogen can go into your joints can go into your brain and they can cause terrible pain and paralysis and sometimes even death and many men were affected by this during the building of the brooklyn bridge and washington was among them because it's important to say too that he was not a desk engineer you know he was down at the work site as much or more as any of his men but from 1872 he really started to be very sick indeed so sick that he couldn't leave his room couldn't leave his bed and he didn't want to see anyone at all except for Emily and she became an extraordinary bridge you might say between her husband and the world And she became incredibly knowledgeable about the work, serving as a kind of extraordinary private secretary, taking all of his dictation, but also going to the bridge site, talking with the engineers, talking crucially to the trustees of the bridge, who were the men that kept the money flowing to this enormous project. And later on in his life, Washington would especially praise her tact in that department i think she was a much better politician than he ever would have been even if he had been healthy he was a man who always spoke his mind sometimes to his own cost. and she was by all accounts incredibly charming people were always won over by her and i think this was an an extraordinary service that she did to serve him in the building of the brooklyn bridge but she really worked remarkably in her own right on the bridge, and so there is, quite rightly, a plaque to her on one of the towers of the bridge now. As you say, she is worthy of a really good biography herself. It would be difficult to do because there aren't the primary sources that there are for Washington.
0: And she went on, she, she graduated from an early kind of law school, yes?
1: Yes, or? that's right. So after the Brooklyn Bridge was completed, in 1883, and she became one of the first women to graduate with a law degree from New York University. It wasn't a law degree that actually enabled her to practice law, but it was designed for wealthy women, really, who wanted to have, who needed knowledge to deal with their families finances and to understand a bit more about the world so it wasn't a law degree as we know it now but it was the beginning of that kind of education for women and she graduated with her degree in 1899 and she traveled the world he liked to stay at home but she was presented to queen victoria she saw the coronation of the last czar she really was a remarkable woman
0: yeah um on the on the leading edge of kind of the suffragette type movement as
1: well Yes, really. Um, Something that I think um, Washington was a little bit doubtful of, too. That's, a, that's another thing I think they, they differed on. It's wonderful reading. Um, uh, they had one son. Their one child was called John, and both Emily and Washington were quite close to John, and Washington also was very fond in later years of his daughter-in-law, Rita. And you can see something of Emily and Washington's relationship in the letters that they wrote to their son, which have this kind of scratchy, exasperated familial warmth. You know, something that's very recognizable if anyone has been in a long relationship, (laughs) the way you can be loving but exasperated with your spouse. So one of my favorite lines is Emily writes to John one day she says something along the lines of today your father it's her wedding anniversary today your father has been married for 31 years I twice as long
0: <laughs> it was it was like a uh it was like sitcom-esque dialogue and exactly and it was really it was you know he was like I said I he he was a little grouchy and a little rough at, at times, but there was this undercurrent of love, and you couldn't help be charmed by him and You could almost see this kind of old man um y- y- you know just kind of rolling his eyes at it but she she had helped him so much for a time in his life that when she wanted to go do these things, it was almost as if it felt to me almost as if he knew like um this was her time to go do these sorts of things <laughs> and while he was Maybe annoyed um there was this level of respect i think
1: yes, oh absolutely, i definitely think so
0: so um but before we're done the the um the company itself is a uh, another uh, another piece of the book that i'm i'm glad um was told uh, because the, the roebling um i make sure I get the name right, but the robling is it robling and Son company
1: don a roebling Sons company it,
0: was a pretty influential organization in american and world history um can can you just give a little overview of what it was and, and why it was so relevant
1: um yes of course i can i'll we'll go back a bit in time we'll return to john roebling uh john roebling was born in 1806 in germany and he came it was not called germany then he came to the united states in 1831 and he had qualified in Germany as a surveyor and a builder, as, as an engineer. And he started work in the 1840s, once he was in America, surveying for something called the Portage Railroad. And the Portage Railroad was a system of canal lifts to bring canal boats over the Allegheny Mountains. And these canal boats were dragged over the mountains using huge hemp hawsers, ropes, big, big ropes made of Kentucky hemp. The trouble with these ropes was they would break. And when they broke, the boats would careen down inclined planes. Lives would be lost. Money would be lost. And when John Roebling saw what was going on, he wondered if you might not make rope out of metal. He had heard about such ropes being used in mines in the Harts Mountains in Germany. So he went back to Saxenburg, which was the community he had founded in western Pennsylvania when he first came over to, un- to the United States, and he gathered all his, the local townspeople who had been farming and brewing beer and doing whatever else they were doing, and gathered them together and started to make wire rope. And in 1842, he patented foundation of the family's fortune. If you think about wire rope, you might think of the suspension bridges, of course, that John Roebling designed, and that wire is used in the cables of those bridges. But where else would you use wire rope? Well, significantly, you would use it in elevators. And in a sense, the development of the modern city, the tall, high-rise city owes an enormous debt to John A. Roebling's wire rope. But it was also used in telegraphs, in telephones, in automobiles, in airplanes. It's a kind of, it still is, a ubiquitous product. It really is a kind of machine in itself that is everywhere around us in our urban lives, so much so that we're really not aware of it. But John A. Sons company became one of the great, industrial companies of the United States, the business quickly outgrew Little Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, and moved to Trenton, New Jersey. And then eventually, at the beginning of the 20th century, the Roebling family bought land just outside Trenton in what is now called Roebling, New Jersey. And you can go to a wonderful museum now called the Roebling Museum that's on the site of the old mill. The company lasted up until the early 1970s. Huh. Now it's a museum. But the John A. Sons company was responsible, for instance, for the cables of the George Washington Bridge, the cables of the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh-huh. And it's also worth saying that there was a Roebling wire in the Wright brothers initial the flyer so that when the Wright brothers first took to the skies there was Roebling Wire involved and there was also Roebling Wire in Charles Lindbergh's Spirit of St. Louis so it was a very important company.
0: So we're talking about the, the importance of this company and um, what's really interesting is Washington was, was so ill during the building of the Brooklyn Bridge um, we, we talked about his Emily Warren going and traveling around, but at some point, when he's much older, he comes back to the Roebling Company, which is also a remarkable story. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, that is a remarkable story. After the Brooklyn Bridge was finished in 1883, Washington never built another bridge. He considered himself an invalid. He was much preoccupied. His passion was with Geology and mineralogy, and he was one of the most important collectors of minerals in the United States and indeed in the world. His collection is now with the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. But John A. Rodling's son's company was run by his younger brothers, his younger brother Ferdinand, his younger brother Charles. Despite the fact that he called himself an invalid, they both predeceased him, as did his nephews. And so in 1921, at the age of 84, Washington Roebling became president of John A. Roebling son's company. And for the next three or four years, he went into the office every single day. He worked nine to five. He went to the office by trolley. He did not like to travel <laughs> in automobiles. He brought his dog in with him. He had a beloved Airedale terrier called Billy Sunday, who was quite... A fixture of Trenton, one understands. And he was a very active president of John A. Roebling's son's company. He really modernized the firm, he converted it over to running by electricity. And that's a really astonishing, I think, final chapter of his life. So having been, he was always knowledgeable about the company. He served as vice president and didn't take a salary for very many years. But then, as I say, in his later years, he came back and he ran the company himself from the age of 84 to 88, which is, again, quite an inspiring story.
0: In the 20s, no less. I mean, there were not many 84-year-old CEOs in the 1920s. No, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, It is, you read this and you... You see him come to life in a way that he, it could be a movie, it could be um, uh, a play uh, in itself. Uh, so again, again, thank you for that. Um, a- as we close, I, uh, uh, I I was struck by the beautiful writing in this book, and um, at times I I it was moving to me. Um, and really early on in the foreword, uh, you talk about kind of the um, the symbol and the metaphor of a bridge. And I I was wondering if you wouldn't mind um, sharing that with us. And I I have a feeling that if anybody, for anyone listening to this, that they will hear this and they want to run out and buy it because it's just such beautiful prose. But it's clear it comes from a place of um, deep meaning to you. And I, I was hoping you could share it with our audience.
1: I would be delighted to, and that's I'm very, um, I'm very grateful and moved by what you say, so thank you. So yes, this is the, just the ending of the foreword of Chief Engineer. Bridges are always more than a way to get from one shore to the other. From the rainbow bridge of the old Norse gods to Pontifex Maximus in Rome, bridges are symbolic of the desire for connection, the possibility of connection. Where there was nothing, now there is something, arcing miraculously through the air. And this is particularly true of suspension bridges, it seems to me. The curve of the cables echoes the shape of a simple cord you can hold between your hands. And when you cross the water, you are indeed suspended, held safe in the bridge's cradle. You are in a place that is no place at all that is in itself between. You belong, quite simply, to the bridge. And then you keep walking and reach the other side.
0: That's just lovely. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, Erica Wagner, author of Washington Roebling, Chief Engineer. Uh, A wonderful book, uh, beautiful writing, and uh, we're so grateful that you have now spent time with us twice in Cincinnati. So thank you so much. Well,
1: it's it's a real pleasure, Brendan. I'm so glad that you asked me to do this. And again I hope we I hope we meet again soon. Indeed.
0: Thank you for joining us today on The 12th Story and thanks again to our guest uh, Erica Wagner all the way from London. We encourage you to subscribe to the Mercantile Libraries podcast via your preferred podcast app. We're available on the iTunes store and on SoundCloud. If you like listening, please tell your friends or tweet to us at MercantileLIB. Today's podcast, as always, was directed by the amazing Chris Messick. Um, The 12th Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati. Our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us at www.mercantillibrary.com, where you can learn more about our library and our incredible upcoming events. Have a great week.